0: Father, we are grateful that you are the God of all mankind. Uh, You love uh, the people of this world, whether they be from Africa, Asia, Europe, America, or where they might be. And Father, we know that each soul is of equal value in your sight, and you are not willing that any should perish. And so we pray that our lives will bear fruit here in the world, the mission field you've placed us, Uh, in Reading in California and yet, Father, may we be part of the international community at least through our prayers and through any other way that you enable us that we might see the work of God go forward because we are really part of one body, the body of Christ, whether it be here or halfway around the world. And Father, I pray that we'll sense that uh, oneness and that fellowship. And I pray, Lord, for the continent of Europe and for the 500 million people that live in just the western part of of that continent and then the millions and millions more uh, that live in Eastern Europe and in Russia. God, uh, pray that you will just break open the door. We're grateful for commission and and for the Heinz and others that are in Russia. And uh, we know, Lord, that this is uh, seed planting time. And we pray that you will open doors all over that continent in in the 40 or so nations and pray that uh, there will be an explosive growth of your church there. Father, we thank you for the word that's before us this morning, and we pray that you will guide us in our understanding. In Christ's name, amen. Again, I'd like to uh, read the passage beginning with the 20th verse of the 23rd chapter of Exodus. Exodus. Exodus 23:20 20, to the end of the chapter. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you will truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you to bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sa- sacred pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water And I will remove sickness from your midst. And there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets ahead of you that they may drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. And I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you. We looked at the first 10 or so verses last week of this particular passage. And I feel that, as I emphasized last week, that that verse 20 can not only be seen as applying to that particular event in that particular time, but I think we can take that verse generically to apply to God's people throughout all time that God is going to send an angel, for us, of course, it's the indwelling Holy Spirit uh, to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. And we can see that as God's guidance in our lives daily and, of course, leading ultimately to the promised land which for us is heaven. But God is with us along the way and He will not leave us nor forsake us, even as that was the promise for, for Israel. There's so many things about the study of the nation of Israel, uh, particularly from the Exodus uh, from uh, Egypt all the way until the entrance of the Canaan uh, to Canaan, that parallels the life of our lives before we're Christians, when we're Christians, and so forth. And uh, sometimes we look at the Israelites and we say, "My goodness, these were dumb people." <laughs> Or they were yo-yo people. Once they're up, and then they're down, and then they're obedient, and then they're disobedient. But, you know, it's not terribly unparalleled to our lives, unfortunately. And I I don't think we have a whole lot of room to criticize. We probably would have done the same had we been walking in their sandals. But God has blessed us with a greater amount of revelation than they have. We have the whole Word of God in our hands today and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to to guide us uh, along the way. And so we have many advantages, I think, and therefore we are more responsible even than they were uh, to live as God has commanded us to live. In the 30th verse of this particular passage this morning, we discover that God's plan was to conquer Israel, the the land of Canaan, region by region. It was not just a a massive... uh, invasion of the land and sweep right through the whole land and blast out the enemy then then settle down and conquer it but they were to take a portion establish themselves firmly move on to the next portion conquer it establish themselves firmly and and so move through the land piece by piece as the passage said I will not lead you to conquer the land in one year it's going to take time and in reality it did it took about seven years to conquer the land, but that wasn't because they did it exactly as God had uh, planned for them to do it. Now, the reason was not that God couldn't enable them to conquer the land swiftly. God could have swept the land free of the Canaanites overnight, had He wanted to. He could have led Israel to conquer the land in, in a month. If you've ever been there, you know how small the land is. You know, you, you think about this, and if you've ever read about the tours or been on some of the tours over there, they, they talk about well, in the morning, we're going to visit uh, Nazareth, where Jesus was born. And then in the afternoon, we're going to visit Jerusalem. And in the evening, we're going to be <laughs> you know, down at the Dead Sea. And you think, whoa, I mean, how are you going to you take jet? No, oh, it's just not that far. You, know, uh, you get on a uh, bus on a highway and, and in between places, you're there in no time. It's a very, very small country. Uh, Israel itself, exclusive of the Sinai, which, of course, they've given back is basically about the size of the state of Massachusetts. You now it's pretty dinky. I've always thought, you know, what do you do if you live in Rhode Island and you want to go for a, for a Sunday afternoon drive? You have to drive through several states just to go far enough to go on a drive, you know. Uh, that's about the way it is in Israel. In Jerusalem on a Sunday afternoon, you could run down to Tel Aviv and up north to Nazareth and <laughs> come back to, to Jerusalem if you wanted to. And dodge a rocket here and there along the way, but... uh, (laughs) If the Canaanites had been routed from large sections of the land before Israel could properly settle the land, before they could gain control, full control for themselves, then what would happen would be while the land was vacant in between, it would revert back to its wild condition. That is, the buildings would start falling down, the the fields would be overcome with weeds, the vineyards would go wild, and the orchards would go wild, and the scripture specifically says the wild animals would become a great threat again. You know, for most of us who, who live in a In a country that's been settled for all these years we don't think much about the wild animals unless you happen to go out and sleep on the mountainside someplace but uh, for most of us we're not afraid uh, f night if we happen to decide to sleep out in our backyard that we're going to be eaten by a bear or attacked by a lion or something of that nature and that wouldn't happen much in israel today either but in the day we're talking about there were a lot of wild animals the bear the lion remember david uh, would later kill a bear and kill a lion just guarding his sheep and so, the wild animals were a serious uh, threat. And so, that, this, they would be held in, uh, you know, back if, if conquered the land, drive out the Canaanites, fully settle, control, take, you know, take charge of the vineyards, the orchards, the crops, and everything, then move on to the next section. That's the way God had it planned. Then in verse 31, we discover the borders of the land. What were to be the boundaries of the promised land? This passage tells us, that the promised land was to extend from the Red Sea. This, in course, probably meant the, the Gulf of Aqaba, which is that gulf that comes up there at the uh, south of the, of the Dead Sea, to the Mediterranean, which is here called the Sea of the Philistines, to the wilderness, which means the Syrian desert, which today is located in the country of Jordan, mostly and partly in Syria, uh, all the way up north to the Euphrates River. This was to be the land. It's far beyond what currently Israel possesses as a nation, and it's far beyond what Israel ever possessed except possibly during the 10th century when David conquered his kingdom and Solomon followed. During that time, it's possible that they ruled most of that area. They had conquered the Arameans to the north and the Philistines to the west and, and so forth. But it it seems that for most of their history, they never occupied fully what God had given to them, but only that central portion uh, where we find Israel even today. Had they occupied what God was given to them, there would have been no Lebanon. Lebanon would have been part of uh, Israel. There would not have been a separate nation of Syria because they would have occupied most of that. They would have occupied uh, basically most of the Sinai, or at least a portion of it, and there would be probably no kingdom of Jordan either today if they had occupied it and been obedient to the Lord. Finally, in this passage that we read in verses uh, 32 and 33, we see that God warned Israel against any compromise with the Canaanites or their gods. And the reason was clear, because the beliefs, the customs, the, the worship of the Canaanites would become a snare to Israel. We might wonder, how is it that you could know the true, the living God, the powerful God who had displayed such might on the top of Sinai, how could you be enticed to follow after some God who's represented by this hideous statue or, or by this sacred pillar or what, you know, You wonder, how could they be enticed? Well, the reason was very, very simple, and that is that the Canaanite lifestyle and the Canaanite worship was very sensual. Everything about their lifestyle and their worship was very sensual. Cultic prostitution, male and female, was part of their worship. There was so much that appealed to the natural fleshly appetites that God knew it would be a snare to them. So they were to remove these people utterly, destroy them kill them, wipe them out of the land, and destroy all of their gods and all of their altars, that there would be nothing remaining of the pagan worship of the Canaanites. One of the truths we discover about God is He will not compromise with Satan. God and Satan do not get together and work out a deal. God has defeated Satan. Satan is nothing but a fallen angel. He is not omnipotent, he is not omnipresent, he is, om, he is not omniscient, he has none of the characteristics of God, and therefore, God. why should God compromise with him? God does not. And since God does not compromise with the evil one, that means that we as his people are not to compromise with Satan's kingdom either. We cannot be a part of the world, love the world, and also love God. We cannot do that. In spiritual warfare, I think one of the things we quickly discover is there is no such thing as an armistice or a truce. You can't wave a white flag and say, okay, let's talk for a while. Uh In spiritual warfare, there are only two conditions, victory or defeat. Nothing in between. There's no tie in spiritual warfare. Any accommodation to the world, the flesh, and the devil by God's people means defeat. Period. That's what it is. It's defeat. So instead of accommodation uh, to, to the evil one, it's, it, you know, as it says in verse 32, you shall, not, you, you shall make no covenant with them or their gods. It's real hard in our society to think this way because we live in this, quote, pluralistic society where we're supposed to say, well, everybody's way and thought and God is as good as everybody else's way, thought, and God. Well, Maybe as far as culture is concerned, that's fine. But as far as biblical Christianity is concerned, that is not fine. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to be oppressive. It doesn't mean we're supposed to be crusaders out there chopping down the evil one or, or the enemies. We're not to be doing that. But we are to stand true to the fact that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. There is no other way. Hinduism has no answer. Uh, um, Islam has no answer. Buddhism has no answer. They're all part of the evil system. They all lead to one place, and that is hell. There's only one way into heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. And because we believe that, we become, quote, bigots in our society. And you hear it all the time, you know, and unfortunately some attach their political persuasion with that and we become the extreme religious right, you know, kind of a new evil force in this world, which some people equate with Nazism, which is about as silly as any equation could ever be made. But we are to stand with that kind of an understanding. And instead of accommodation, instead of accommodation, and and you could find many other scriptures, but I just strung a few together to illustrate. Instead of accommodating with the enemy, what are we to do? Well, first of all, we're to flee from youthful lusts and pursue what? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Secondly, we are to come out from their midst and be separate and do not touch what is unclean, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Thirdly, we're not, To not let immorality, impurity, or greed even be what? Named in your midst. That's something where the church has really fallen uh, guilty in, in this area. That immorality, impurity, and greed are named in the church, unfortunately, in so many instances, even in this country. But according to Ephesians 5, this is not to be in the church. In Psalm 1, we're told to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor to be in the path of sinners. Fifthly, we're told to submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee, according to James 4. In Romans chapter 12, that's such a wonderful chapter, but Romans chapter 12 specifically says that rather than accommodating, we're to overcome evil with good. And then lastly, of course, the passage that we're very familiar with in Ephesians 6.11, where it says, to put on the full armor of God, that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the evil one. So rather than accommodation, we're, we're to be strong in our assault against the evil kingdom and to resist everything that it stands for and not even to smack in the slightest of the ways of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's where the church in America, in so many instances, has totally missed the mark. There are churches that at one time were fireball churches where the gospel was preached and people lived according to faith, which are churches now where you come in your nice finery and you sit there and listen to a nice little political homily from the front and you go home having felt like you, you worshipped God because you were inside a place that had a cross on the wall or something like that. And, and of course, the enemy has these people totally hoodwinked because they think, as as he said, there he is, well, you know... Uh, it talks about God and the Holy Spirit and all of this. And, and you, I don't know if I really believe that, but I'm a Christian, you know. That's the kind of attitude that so many have here even in America today. Let's look at the 24th chapter. We'll get started in, in that chapter. It's a very, some pretty exciting things happen in uh, this particular chapter. I'd like to read the first eight verses of chapter 24 of Exodus. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. One of the things that is really emphasized by this passage and so many of these passages is obedience. Obedience is a word that we don't like much in America today. It's kind of like, Do your own thing. If it feels good, do it. And and even in in many evangelical churches, they'd rather believe in the love of God than to understand that that love incorporates obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. You will keep my commandments. That's a hard thing for some people because they have this, this warm, fuzzy feeling about love that the love of God fills them, and so they have love for each other, and that love can actually get out of control until it leads to sensual practices. This is historically what's happened. I mean, if you read the history of revivals in America, and you go back particularly to what was known as the Second Great Awakening, which began around 1799 and and went over into the first couple of decades of of the 19th century, I mean, they had huge camp meetings. I mean, camp meetings with 25,000 people in one camp meeting. And they didn't have a nice facility in which to have it. I mean, they just parked their tents out in the trees. And the excesses that happened there were incredible. I mean, nine months later, there was this huge crop of camp meeting babies to unwed girls. You see, the love of God just was taken as an emotional thing, and it carried over, I love you so much, you know, they got, things got out of hand. It took fire into their bosom, you might say. And, and that's what God is talking about, the snare here. The snare doesn't have to be an overt, evil image sitting up there that you know is a pagan god. It can be just a thought, you know, just just things that become gods in our own minds. Misinterpretation of who the real God is and what he believes and what he teaches. Given God's earlier instructions, as we have read them from Exodus, concerning the fact that Israel was not even to touch this mountain, it's interesting to know, notice that God is now saying to Moses, "You come up here, but you bring 73 other men with you up on this mountain." Whoa! You know, suddenly God is changing the rules here. But they were not to force to go up into the cloud, just to go up onto the mountain part way. And they would worship at a distance, but Moses would stand face-to-face with God in the cloud. I can hardly imagine anybody in all of the course of history who ever had such dynamic encounters with God as Moses. Many had wonderful visions, the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel and John and others, but to stand face-to-face with God on the mountain in that pyrotechnic cloud for days and days, for 40 days and 40 nights at one session alone. I don't know how many nights, I mean, how many hours did Moses spend total on that mountain? How many times has he already gone up and down that we've already, I didn't go back to count. But you remember several lessons back in that one lesson, he'd been up and down the mountain three times. And, and he goes up again, and he comes down again. And in this lesson he goes up again, down again, up again. I mean, he probably wore a groove in that mountain where he went up. You know. He knew the path every foot of the way. So how many days did that man actually spend on that mountain, face to face with the living God? With the exception of Joshua and Hur, virtually the whole leadership of Israel was called up on that mountain. Moses and Aaron, his brother, and then Nadab and Abihu, those were the two oldest sons of Aaron, and then also the 70 tribal leaders who were called the elders of Israel. Now, given the vision, and and we'll be looking at that vision. Well we'll be looking at that vision probably (laughs) in some detail next week. Given that vision, you wonder how could it be that someone like Nadab and Abihu could do what they would do? You know the story? Well, let's look at Leviticus chapter ten. Leviticus chapter ten, the first three verses. Now Nadab and Abihu. Sons of Aaron took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Now, it wasn't just that they made a mistake, put the wrong formula in, and walked before God, and so he zapped them. We're talking about an attitude of mind and heart here. Nadab and Abihu had the same attitude that Cain had. What, my sacrifice should be just as good as anybody else's? Who's to tell me what kind of sacrifice I should make before God? God should just be happy I'm coming before him to worship. Uh, What should it matter whether I have the wrong formula or I'm doing it the wrong way? But, but as God says there, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. You will do what I tell you to do or else. You don't do it your way. You do it my way. And it's not because God's a giant ego up there who's, who's insulted every time somebody does his own thing. It's because we're made in the image of God. He is the creator. We're the creation. He knows what's best for us. And if we do what he tells us to do, we will be blessed beyond our comprehension. And we will have peace, we'll have joy, we'll have content, we'll have all the things that God made us to have if we do what He wants us to do, not because He likes to be a cosmic killjoy, as some have said, but because He wants us to to enjoy life and to have all the good things that He wants us to have. And we get those by obedience. By trusting and obeying. And God destroyed those two men as an example. Now, I I don't know where they are now today. Did God just cut them down and and then uh, they went into His presence anyway? You know, the Scripture tells us later in the New Testament that some will be saved yet as by fire, by the skin of their teeth, so to speak. What we find here is the fairness and the grace of God, the fairness and the grace of God, is seen in the fact that he knew what Nadab and Abihu would do later. God is never taken by surprise, right? He knew what these guys were going to do later on, and yet he allowed them to come up that mountain, to stand in his presence, and to see this vision, to catch a glimpse of the glory of God, and to give them an honored position, yet knowing what they would do. That illustrates the kind of character that God has. He is fair. He is just. He is gracious. He is merciful. But they paid a price because they did not trust in that grace, trust in that mercy, and their own arrogance. I mean, that's the killer of all of us. Pride. Pride is the great killer. Uh, It's our pride that leads us into almost every form of sin because pride is behind covetousness. And covetousness makes us acquisitive for anything and everything and anybody. The power... And the glory of God was flowing through this man, Moses. Not because he was specially holy. Not because he was, you know, somebody a cut above everybody else. But because God chose to use him and he was a man of obedience and a man of faith. And he carried the word of God back down the mountain to the people. And he proclaimed to the people the instructions of the Lord. And the people said, all that God has said we will do. Have you ever said that? Oh God, I will do all that you ask me to do. One hour later, you're screaming at somebody because they stepped on your toe, you know, or something, so to speak. Well, so it would be with Israel. And Moses sat down, we're told, and wrote on a scroll all that God had commanded him. Notice, this we are, we're all affected by the Ten Commandments. In fact, some thought I had I brought a little clip from the Ten Commandments here to show this morning. But we're all affected by that if we've ever seen that movie that Moses went up the mountain and the first thing he did was get the Ten Commandments in stone and bring it down the mountain. No, no. Uh-uh. He's already gotten the Ten Commandments. He's gotten other teachings. He's come down. He's taught it. He's writing it all down before he ever gets it in stone. He's going back up the mountain next now to get it in stone. God hasn't written it in stone yet. He gave it to him orally first. Moses wrote it down in papyrus second. And then God gave it third in stone. All of the commandments and the corollary laws. And in obedience to God, he set up an altar there at the base of the mountain. It would be nice to know how long that altar remained there at the base of the mountain. I don't think they tore it down when they moved. I think they left it behind as a memorial. But how long did it last? I don't know. But he built this altar, and he put 12 stones around it, arrayed around it like the spokes of a wheel. And I think the picture is somewhat analogous to a wheel. Here's the altar, and here are the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of God. And just as the wheel is useless without the hub, which applies the torque, which makes the wheel go, so Israel was totally dependent upon God to do and to be and to conquer the land, and and to be the people of God. Required the presence of God, and that altar reflected God's presence. And peace offerings were made on the altar. Sacrificial blood was captured in bowls, and we're told in this passage that half of the blood was sprinkled on the altar to consecrate it, and the other half was sprinkled on the people as the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. A seal, a seal by God, you have heard my words and you have said, all that you have said, O God, we will do. And so the blood was sprinkled on the people to seal that covenant that they had made verbally with God. And that blood, of course, was symbolic of the blood that Jesus Christ would shed 1400 years later, sealing the new covenant. As Jesus said to His disciples, this cup is the new covenant. In my blood. Well, next Sunday, uh, we'll pick up with chapter 24, verse 9, and we'll look at the vision that these men had there up on the mountain called Sinai.